This episode is brought to you by Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma. When it's time for an aircraft component inspection, overhaul, repair, or replacement, you need experienced technicians you can trust and friendly service you can count on. Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma, a family-owned business since 1959, delivers just that. Our techs have real-world experience and provide sales, service, and overhaul for piston engine aircraft accessories. We also have limited turbine capabilities such as fuel pumps, starter generators, and prop governors. And we can overhaul propellers ranging from fixed pitch to turbine. Propeller pickup and delivery service is available. And one more thing, mention this podcast to receive 5% off your next sale, service, or overhaul. Visit aircraftaccessoriesofok.com. This episode is brought to you by Genesis Aerosystems, a Moog company and leading provider of autopilots for rotor and fixed-wing aircraft. The Genesis STEC 3100 Digital Autopilot provides increased safety, decreased pilot workload, and is approved for over 200 makes and models. To learn more about the STEC 3100, visit genesis-aerosystems.com. That's genesis-aerosystems.com. This week on Hangar Talk, the FAA finalizes a big AD for Piper owners. And aviation events continue virtually, at least through the first part of 2021. Also, somebody might be going to prison for a drone collision. We're going to find out more about the Mahindra Gips Aerovan 8. Finally, the gamma numbers are out and mixed bag, we'll call it again. Ian, are you ready to do some Hangar Talk today? Let's do it, David. From AOPA, your freedom to fly. This is Hangar Talk. The 1056 turn right heading 130, contact final 132.4. Turn right, guys. With your hosts, Ian Twombly and David Tulitz. This is Hangar Talk. Welcome to Hangar Talk, everybody. I'm Ian Twombly. I'm David Tulis. David, our guest this week is Dean Greenblatt. Now, folks might not know Dean, but they've probably heard of the organization he's involved in. It's called Operation Good Cheer out of Child and Family Services in Michigan, and they deliver, with airplanes and trucks and and other means, but mostly by airplane, they deliver tens of thousands of presents a year to kids in foster care in Michigan. And this is really a case where Santa does fly a GA airplane. Yeah, so Dean will be on a little later, talk about how they do it and, and what it means to him to be able to use aviation in that way. So a little Christmas cheer we're spreading here this week. But let's get started with the news. Some some colon and stockings of uh, Piper owners. We'll say. Yeah, not, not so cheery news no. in uh, some of these reports. Yeah, no. So we we've I think mentioned this before. This is a an AD that uh, the FAA had been proposing. It is now final. It's for the spar corrosion inspection on certain PA twenty eight and thirty two models, and this is going to impact more than eleven thousand airplanes. This is a big AD. It is, Ian, and folks with the the PA-28 and the 32 models, those are are the single-engine Cherokees, they'll need to get this done within 12 months or 100 hours, and it could involve bore scopes or access panel installations or, at the worst case, a wing removal, and we don't know how much that's going to cost. Yeah, so FAA is saying that the inspection is 170 bucks, takes about two hours. Okay, fine. That's not too bad. That's reasonable. Yeah, you can install access panels to make it easier in the future, and they're saying that'll cost about 730 bucks. The big issue, though, and they say it's unknown, is what happens if they actually find corrosion and repair needs to take place. Exactly. And then I was sharing with you a little bit before we started recording that I used to own an air coop, and air coopers were up in arms when something similar 
occurred with air coupes. It was a wing spar corrosion issue, and the inspection panels were called the Swiss cheese inspection panels, but it really did give mechanics a place to look inside with a bore scope and, and do some inspections of the wing spars. And you know, uh, Fred Wyke, who designed the air coupe, also designed that Cherokee wing. I just wonder if there are some similarities in that and maybe something he didn't think about way back when. Yeah, yeah, that wouldn't surprise me. I mean, I hopefully the people who own these PA28s and 32s have already heard about this because the NPRM was issued way back in 2017. So hopefully they've known it's coming. Maybe some people have even gotten an inspector just to know what's up. But yeah, so definitely keep that in mind. Read that, work with your mechanic because you're going to want to make sure that you are prepared in case there is a big bill. So full story is on AOPA.org and you can check that out for the details. Moving on, David, we, we've talked a lot this year about virtual events and you're, you've now reported on a couple of new ones that we're looking now even into 2021. Ian, it is a sign of the times, but we already know going into 2021 that the Women in Aviation International, the annual seminar, is going to be virtual. And also the National Business Aviation Association announced several virtual events in the first part of 2021. So we have two major aviation organizations Women in Aviation International, their annual conference. And Ian, this is where a lot of scholarships are given out. That's going to be March 11th and 12th. It's virtual because of the COVID-19 pandemic trends. Of course, we hope there's a vaccine available by then. But, you know, looking at reality, it, perhaps not. And it was it was going to be an in-person conference at Reno Sparks Convention Center in Reno. Yeah. Now, I know there are a few in-person events going on. I mean, AOPA has announced some stuff for 2021, which I've already talked about. And then actually, just as we record this, this coming weekend, Sun and Fun, you know, they, of course, canceled their show way back in the beginning of the year. But they are holding kind of a an abbreviated, different type of event with stole and some camping and stuff like that on the grounds in Lakeland. And that's that's in person. In person, December 4th and 5th, and they're calling it the Holiday Festival and Car Show at Lakeland Linder International Airport. Ian, it will be a time for folks to get out and enjoy some aviation, you know, with uh, social distancing in mind. And, and the folks that are organizing this, you know, at the Sun and Fun Aerospace Center, basically they're using a lot of, you know, a lot of procedures to make sure people are safe. And the main takeaway that I would, you know, refer to from this is that, you know, Sun and Fun, the actual event itself, provides a lot of funding to that aerospace center. Yes, to the school, yeah. Right, to the school. And so I think that, you know, we still have to get something going on to provide some of the funding to get some of these, you know, high schoolers up to speed on aviation. And a lot of those folks uh, really do pursue aviation careers. So it's a pretty important thing. Yeah. So this will be a really interesting test because I, my guess is this will be the biggest event, aviation in-person event of the year. So we'll have to see kind of what comes of this. I think it'll, a lot of people were waiting for this to happen because they, they want to use it as kind of a guide for what's going to happen in 2021. So if this is successful, you know, I, I would think that you'll see more in-person stuff in 2021. I will say HAI, you know, the helicopter group, they're doing an in-person conference in 2021 in March which is surprising to me, but they're going to go for it. And they keep saying, we're pushing forward, we're pushing forward. So that's that's obviously a much different event. I mean, that's inside. It's inside, but with a lot of precautions, Ian. Like when you sign up to and register at HAI, you get basically you get a, a disinfectant pack, mm. among other things. Yeah, and, it's a, and I think that some of the registration is also touchless. So 
there's some technology that's going to help folks out there. But you're right, the events for HAI uh, will be spread out, you know, and uh, and so there's a lot of social distancing with that. But I think vendors are going to be happy to see some of their customers and, you know, potential customers. Yep, yep, that's right. So, hey, I want to move on to really, I, I think this is a really interesting story. You know, since drones came about, the first thing that people have talked about, obviously, is the collision risk. You know, what sort of damage could they do at an airplane or a helicopter? How safe can they, you know, separate themselves? Are we going to be able to trust operators? And it has happened now, and we've reported on one or two of, of these collisions. And now this is the first, they, they say, this is the first time where a drone operator has collided with a helicopter and that person is being prosecuted and actually faces prison time. Federal prison time, Ian, and yeah. different different <laughs> yeah, than right. local prison time. <laughs> yes. yeah. So, yeah, and so what happened was an individual in uh, the L.A. area basically collided with a LAPD helicopter. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, this could be bad for everyone involved with that. So I think we'll rem- it remains to be seen what exactly happens, but but right now it does not look good, and prison time can be faced by this individual. I don't know if you want to name him or not, Ian. It's in Jim Moore's story. Yeah, it is in the story. I mean, his name's Andrew Hernandez, and so he's 22. And I guess the the story goes, you know, the helicopter LAPD helicopter was kind of near his house. He flew his drone up. He says he looked down at the controller, looked back, and the helicopter collided with his drone. The helicopter, actually, the helicopter pilot said he saw the drone prior to the collision and did try and maneuver away from it and wasn't able to. So now I've, I've always been curious how people get caught, you know, how these drone operators get caught. This, yeah. to me, is is one of the most interesting parts of this story because it's almost like a stupid criminal story. <laughs> he, of course, nobody expects to collide their drone with something. But this kid, you know, the drone came down in a parking lot, shattered the windshield of a car. They recovered the data card from the drone and found his picture on the data card, as well as a bunch of footage. He had, I guess, taken a selfie with the drone or something. There so you go. A it drone-y. didn't take well, long. We call yeah. it a droney now. A droney? Yeah. Okay, okay. <laughs> but Ian, here, here's the thing. Being a longtime photojournalist and myself, you don't interfere with a police investigation while it's happening. Yes. Now, this is yes. a tricky thing that a lot of people are trying to sort through. But, you know, and this is from Dave T's perspective. Listen. We have to work with some of these law enforcement personnel and agencies the best we can. And in my prior days working for the newspapers and the wire services, yes, I want to report on what they are looking for and what Mm -hmm. the situation is because your job is to bring that back to people who can't be there. And it could be a significant safety risk for people in the area if they don't know that a search is going on or something like that. So there's that side of it, Ian. But the other side of it is you cannot impede an investigation. And I think that in this case, the drone pilot operator was impeding this investigation, and that is not good. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, there's a few things that probably are hurting him here. One is that he wasn't a registered, you know, he he didn't have a pilot certificate, wasn't, you know, I don't even know if his drone was registered. So it's, you know, and I think neighbors pointed out that he flies it often. And so it sounds like he wasn't really trying to follow the FAA's rules. And, uh, you know, so it's not just like, hey, he's a professional this was a really inadvertent collision because, you know, I was thinking about this as, as another, you know, as flying manned airplanes. It's like if you have a midair, chances are you're probably, you know, OK, so you may get cited for careless and reckless or, you know, seeing a void or whatever. But you're, you might lose your certificate for 30 days, 60 days. 
you know, the FAA, obviously, I think it's interesting how they're looking at drone operators a little bit differently. I mean, I, I have never heard of a pilot facing jail time for a midair or, you know, rarely, very rarely accidents. But to see this in the unmanned community, I think it's 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 pretty fascinating. Well, that's interesting standpoint, Ian, and I'm glad you brought that up. You know, we do need to mention that the flight crew returned to Hooper Heliport and a helicopter made an emergency landing. Of yeah, some that's sort. a good point. Yeah, your helicopter is fine. Yep. Yep, good point. You know, and as, as a pilot who has declared an emergency before, I can tell you a few things run through your mind before you really want to declare an emergency. But I declared one extremely, you know, very, very quickly. There's no question about it. I would imagine if you're in an airplane or helicopter and you, you hear a giant thud, which could be uh, a bird as well, yeah, that that, yeah. that is that is something that you would want to take extremely seriously because you just don't know if the control surfaces are damaged in a helicopter. You know, you're a helicopter pilot, Ian, and if that, that tail rotor gets damaged in any way, that spells big trouble. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. So, so we'll follow the story because it'll be interesting to see what happens at the trial or if he settles or what. But uh, but he is the first one that we know of that's been criminally charged. So, hey, moving on, we want to talk for a little bit about Mahindra. Now, Mahindra is maybe a company that you haven't heard of, but probably you've heard of the Airvan, Gips Arrows, who developed it and sold it to Mahindra a few years ago. They're a big conglomerate out of India. And now Mahindra wants to say, eh, we don't want it anymore. They want to sell it now as well. Well, we'll talk a little bit more about the numbers um, in detail when we talk about the gamma numbers, but the company sold, basically delivered two of the Gips Airvan 8s during the third quarter of this year. And the Airvan 8, a lot of folks who might be familiar with the Civil Air Patrol might know that they fly that aircraft as well. Mm -hmm. And it's powered by a 300-horsepower Lycoming IO540. And it's been flying in like 43 countries, and there are about yeah. 250 of the airplanes in service. So it's a it's a relatively well distributed aircraft, and like you said, it's owned by a, a conglomerate out of India. But they're trying to sell that division. Yeah. Now Mahindra, if you're not familiar, I mean, I think of Mahindra like, boy, it's sort of like if GM, John Deere, and you know Honda lawnmowers merged, and and you know it's all one company, and so Airvan, where you're selling two units a year, I mean, I think it's probably a rounding error for them, and so they just want to say, okay, fine, somebody else take this who can actually do something with it. So this is an interesting airplane. You know, AOP has done a few stories on it, and Tom Haynes visited them in Australia. It is completely purpose built. I mean, to the to the extent that the height of the tail, which is a li- slightly unusual for its size is made specifically to be able to go over a fence. So the idea was, yeah, you could land in a cow field and be able to turn around and put the tail right over the fence. I mean, just things like that. You know, the shape of the cabin is purpose-built, that sort of thing. So there are, there's definitely, I mean, you said 250 airplanes around the world. I mean, there is a market for these things. And certainly there's money to be made selling parts. So I think there'll be a buyer and it probably won't take too long. And, And maybe somebody who's actually passionate about producing the airplane will, you know, breathe some new life into it. Yeah, it's an interesting airplane, as you said, and also it's really versatile. The way it is built, you can get into some unimproved strips with it, too. And I think that's a real popular use for that airplane. Yeah, yeah, that's right. So you mentioned, you know, the gamma numbers. They produced, I think it was two in the third quarter. That's all they've done all year. There were some other success stories, though, with the third quarter, starting with Cessna. Well, Cessna 172s, we already heard that the Cessna 172s overtook the world, you know, during some of the coronavirus slowdowns. But basically the 172 Cessnas led all single, basically led all piston aircraft in deliveries in the third quarter. And that's significant. Gosh, Ian, 
when was the last time we were able to report on on it like that? We're usually talking about Cirrus at the front of the front of the heap there. Yeah, it's been a long time, I think, since Cessna produced more 172s than Cirrus did the SR22. But yeah, third quarter, just the third quarter, Cessna put out 94 Skyhawks. I mean, to put that in perspective, that's almost what they did in all the first half of the year combined. Compare that to Cirrus, which between the SR22 and the SR22T put out about, uh, we'll call it 82 airplanes. So it'll be interesting to see what happens in the fourth quarter. And, and you know, Cirrus has been the single engine leader with the SR-22 for, oh boy, a years long and years time. And years. A long yeah. time, correct. Yep, yep. Now, so uh, yeah, it'll be interesting to see if, the, if uh, Cessna can come back. Well, I'll tell you what, turning around about half as many single engine airplanes as, uh, as the 172s is the Piper Archer. So 46 of those were delivered in that third quarter. And if you'll recall, several entities had ordered a whole bunch of these Piper Archers for training. Yep. And so we're starting to see you know, pretty significant numbers of those being delivered as well, but nowhere near as many as the Cessna 172. So hats off to Textron Cessna for the, for the venerable Skyhawk yeah. populating the air. Yeah. So you know, the bad news is to the rest of the report is that the turbines and turboprops so jets and turboprops were both down again as were rotorcraft killing me but single engine market as i think with people are seeing at the airport you know it's like flight schools are still hammering away the airport's busy with single engine flying i mean so those deliveries continue to climb and are very very healthy and uh, we've talked to a couple of pilots and instructors and and folks who own aviation businesses at airports and you know business is good especially in the single engine front in and in the cfi front folks who have a, have that cfi are actually in high demand right now and that's even despite the fact that there's a commercial aviation slowdown so there are some high points for general aviation, and especially in the single engine front. And I think that we're going to see that, you know, for a, a couple of years to come at least. Yeah. So I, before we go to Dean, I think one important thing that we need to mention is this is a historic gamma report because it is the first one with certified electric airplanes being delivered. Ian, I missed that in the uh, report. <laughs> what did you find about certified airplanes, certified electric airplanes that were delivered? Yeah. So now the Gamma Report is global. I mean, we talk about it mostly in terms of, you know, U.S. deliveries, but they are, it is, it encompasses all global deliveries. And so Pipistrol, which is a member, the virus, virus, they would say. The unfortunately Electro. named, unfortunately yes, that's named right. aircraft. Yeah. So Pipistrol has delivered five of them in this quarter. We know, you know, we talked about how that got uh, IASA certified earlier in the year. So there are five certificated electric aircraft out there flying now, and that is a first, a world first. Ian, kudos to you for taking a deep dive in the Gamma Report as you usually do. That is fantastic. Well, I hope to see one of these days soon. I hope we hope to see uh, George By on there. We've had him. Yeah. Uh, we've reported on his uh, efforts quite quite a few times, and he's out of Denver, so that's uh, interesting to keep our eye on. Yeah. So, hey, I want to bring on Dean. Like we said at the top of the show, this is a fantastic organization, Operation Good Cheer. They deliver tens of thousands of presents every year to foster kids around Michigan. And it's just a great feel-good story about what airplanes can do and, and pilots specifically when they want to give back. Well, Dean, thanks 
so much for joining us today. I really appreciate it. And I'm really excited to talk about this program that I think people outside of Michigan have probably never heard of, but everybody in Michigan knows very well and is and is justifiably proud of. And that is Operation Good Cheer, an organization and an, and an effort that you've been involved in for a couple of decades now. But before we get into that, I want to just talk about you a little bit. You're an attorney, you practice in Michigan. And so give us a little bit about your background and what you fly and that sort of thing. Yeah, thanks, Ian, for asking me to to, to comment Operation Good Cheer. Love talking about it. And of course, love talking about myself. Uh, <laughs> I, I am an attorney uh, licensed in Michigan and Florida. And I'm a pilot. I used to be an airline pilot, flew for U.S. Air and Kitty Hawk Air Cargo, and then went back to school, got a law degree, and kind of practiced in the area of aviation law and, uh, and civil litigation. So I stick with aviation law. It's not something that uh, pays all the bills, but uh, obviously it's something that I'm really interested in. Yeah, I'm passionate about. Now, we're talking today because of, of this incredible, I guess, event, effort, uh, initiative that you guys do every year, Operation Good Cheer. So give us, if you would, just kind of the really broad overview about about what this is. Well, I certainly didn't start it. Started 50, This is the 50th running of Operation Good Cheer in 2020. So it's been around for a long time. I knew the gentleman that, that started it. He was a flight instructor. And how it got its start, it was that he had the desire to do something worthwhile for uh, the holiday season for Christmas and thought it spent a lot of time finding something that was worthy and decided to get hooked up with Child and Family Services of Michigan at that time, which supports children in foster care. So what, what grew out of his interest in helping kids back in 1971 was a gift giving operation which he started with just sponsoring 66 kids and delivering gifts with his Cessna 210, I think it was at the time. And it has grown substantially to my estimate of the numbers of people that are involved in one way or another every year. It's almost about 25,000 people over a two-day period. God, that's fascinating. And so obviously this is a, a major logistical undertaking, something that uh, FedEx or UPS would be proud of. You're at the center of this uh, many years, so give us a flavor of, of exactly what happens. As I gather, people, gifts essentially make their way from all over Michigan to a central point, and then pilots are involved to then disperse those through the foster care system. So tell us how, how that works. Well, it's significantly different than you know gift-giving programs like Toys for Tots, where people just donate gifts, and the gifts are kind of you know random and they may be new, but they're not really chosen for anyone in particular. They're just gifts that are donated, and then they're distributed at some point. This is a very different program. This is a situation where there's about 13,000 kids in foster care, and a, a bit over 7,100 were participating with Operation Good Cheer last year. And what the kids do is, through cooperation with the foster parents, is they make out a list of five gifts or so that they want. One item has to be clothing, but anything that they want. And they make out these lists. They give them to their foster parents. The foster parents give them to uh, the list to foster care agencies that they're associated with. Those foster care agencies participate with Child and Family Services of Michigan, give all the uh, wish lists, which have the, the identification of the child on the list. The last names are de-identified on those lists. And then the lists are distributed to donors. And the donors will go out and buy, they're told to buy three of the five gifts. 
but realistically, we know that the donors pretty much just buy everything on the list, but they still have to put them in three boxes. <laughs> but the, the goal is not to have 20. <laughs> they have to pretend. <laughs> they have to pretend. And the thing is, is that, you know, frequently foster children are housed in a home with biological children sometimes. And we don't want a situation where a foster child has 29 gifts and the biological children have uh, three or so or three or four. So we ask that there be three boxes and then they open them up and they, they, you know, they're obviously stuff, but that's fine. You know, we're not the gift police and then they'll put in things like gift cards and things like that. And that's fine. But th the point is, is that children in foster care are getting the gifts that they want that are unique to their desires. Now those gifts are purchased by donors. They are wrapped by donors. They're labeled with labels that are provided by uh, Operation Good Cheer so that we know where the gift is going, to what destination within the state of Michigan and to which agency and the child's first name and first initial the last name. And those gifts are then brought to central pickup locations. They're picked up by semi and other larger trucks and brought to a central sorting location. And up until this year, We've done it at Pennistar Aviation at the Pontiac Airport in Waterford, Michigan. The gifts are then sorted all day Friday and into the evening for a specific number of destinations. We usually have about 30. And then the uh, gifts are preloaded onto trucks. They're trucked out to uh, a ramp area based on destination. And then we start accepting aircraft around 7 o'clock in the morning, basically at daylight, on the first full weekend, uh, Saturday in December. So, you know, Michigan weather in December is always fun and exciting and cold or warm or snowy or clear. Who knows? Yeah, or icy or all the above. Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes all, all, all the same uh, throughout the state because the weather can be substantially different in other parts of the state than it is mm -hmm. uh, at uh, Punic, uh, dealing with the lakes and everything else. But we have the, uh, the gifts out on the ramp and we start loading. GA airplanes, uh, pilots check in in the morning, flying in from all over the place, including as far as away as uh, New York and Florida. They fly into Pontiac, they taxi onto the main terminal ramp, we check them in, we give them their choice of destination based upon what's available on the trucks, and then they go out to their airplanes, they taxi out to the trucks, or for the bigger jets and turbines, we'll, we'll drive a truck to those aircraft and load them, and then they're off to the destination. And once those trucks are emptied, then we move in other destinations. And so we have a rotating list of destinations. We have a rotating roster of pilots. Uh, last year, we had about 235 participating aircraft, ranging from Falcon 2000 and Gulfstream to uh, Piper Tomahawk. So uh, we wow. throw, we're not picky. Yeah. If, it, if it's got wings or rotors, we will, we will, we will load it and throw the gifts on there and send it on its way. Last year for the first time, well, as far as donors go to buy the gifts, we had a waiting list. If you wanted to sponsor a child, we had you had to wait until we found a child that you could go buy a gift for. Oh, if you amazing. wanted to and if you wanted to fly, we actually had to put people on standby lists because we had too many aircraft. The logistics wow. involved in, in saturating the airspace and yes. the parking areas at Pontiac made it impossible to accommodate everybody at once. We only have a certain number of parking spaces, so we have to have people arrive at the airport 
in staggered by time. And then we have to send people out staggered. And it's, it's quite an operation. And I'm just a small part of it. You have controllers, some of whom helped uh, write a, uh, our NOTAM, the first NOTAM we had last year to separate aircraft. We, we have artsy facilities, Detroit, Cleveland, Chicago, Great Lakes Approach, and, and, and Minneapolis Center. We, 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 there's a lot of people involved at, on the air traffic side. There's a lot of trucking companies because we do truck a fair a percentage of the gifts. We have to coordinate with all the pilots, with all the destination agencies, because we're not just doing this at Pontiac Airport. At each of the destination airports, we have another group of people waiting to help unload the aircraft. So it's, it's logistically, it's scary. So you, there are, I mean, you said uh, how many destinations? It was total. Do you go around Michigan? Yeah, it's where well, we have 30 destinations. I think yeah. last year, I'm trying to remember how many we flew is probably in the neighborhood of 12 destination airports. So a lot of the destinations are serviced by semis simply because logistically we can't get any more aircraft into Pontiac yeah. and out of Pontiac. So yeah. we're talking about 7,200 children, each with you know three to five gifts. You're talking about 25,000 boxes, all uh, your average you become an expert at this over the years, but a 172 is going to handle about 40 gifts. Wow. That many. That's, that's surprising. Actually, I would have said, I would have thought, well, they could help two kids maybe, you know, it's, uh, a, it's an average six boxes. Yeah. Yeah. That's fascinating. So like you said, I mean, in addition to Pontiac, you've got all these other volunteers scattered around the state. And so you, you have to have people, I mean, it's, we know it is an aviation story, but it, aviation is a very small part of that. I mean, you have people who have to go to the airport all day and spend their time, and obviously you and other people on the board and all the people at Pontiac. I mean, the, you know, aviation is just a small fraction of this of this massive effort. No individual, including me, has ever seen every aspect of this program. I've never seen a child get a gift. I know that it happens. Yeah. Well, I was going to ask you about that. And that's one thing I'm fascinated about because it, because it is so large and because it has to be so well organized, you, you don't get the payoff, you know, you, you, you do all this work, but you don't get to see the final result and, and sort of, you know, what that must feel like somebody else does, I suppose, maybe the foster parents who definitely deserve it, but you know, you have to be sort of internally motivated there to, to do all that work every year, just sort of knowing what the benefit is going to be, but not being able to see it. Well, the, the reward is in doing it itself. But I will say that Child and Family Services in Michigan does ask that the, the recipients of the gifts write a thank you that then is distributed to the donors. I have seen some of those thank yous, but unless you're a donor, generally you would not. The pilots who are flying, you know, sometimes at a destination airport, there'll be a long conga line of children who help unload the aircraft at the destination. Uh, so whether or not those children are in foster care or not, we have no way of knowing. There are so many different pieces and parts of Operation Good Cheer. And like I say, no one has seen them all, but everybody's seen a little bit. And the people that donate the gifts frequently never get to experience the aviation portion of Operation Good Cheer. They don't get to ride in the airplane and, 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 and travel from one uh, location to another. The pilots don't you know, some do, but not all uh, uh, buy the gifts or see the, the wish lists and the explanation of the child or get the thank you. 
Sometimes they'll get coffee and a bowl of chili at a destination airport, but it, everybody gets something different out of Operation mm-hmm. Good Cheer. But the overall experience is really a reward in itself. I mean, it makes yeah. it all worthwhile. Yeah, and I think you know the fact that a pilot started it and it's grown so far beyond aviation. I, I just think is great. I mean, it's it's you know there are many times when you think, well, it's an excuse to just kind of go flying and, like you said, get a bowl of chili. But in this case, it is you know it's it's gone so far beyond. It, it is pretty amazing. And you said even people from out of state, I guess, come in and, and do some of the flying. Oh, sure. As a matter of fact, pretty regularly we have the Ohio State University. I think uh, comes in and uh, with some aircraft and. And they'll typically fly in in formation and uh, try to land it at the same time and then uh, load and go to the same destination. Uh, we accommodate that 99% of the time. You know, if there's uh, a particular destination they want to go somewhere with somebody else, we, we try to accommodate that logistically. But yeah, there's people come in from Ohio and from Florida. We, we had a, a Baron pilot, as I recall, from New York that would come in every year and, you know, there are fascinating stories that everybody has about Operation Good Cheer and what they see. And nobody can know all of the stories, but they're really heartwarming. And I, I remember a, a 91-year-old who would fly a Cessna 150 every year. Wow. And, and I saw him every year, and he, everybody's wearing a Santa hat. And, and he would load his one or two or three gifts in his Cessna 150 and fly it yeah. every year. And he was always happy and smiley. And, you know, after three or four years, uh, you know, I, oh, I don't see him anymore. Well, he, he passed on, but I will always mm-hmm. remember, remember his generosity and the joy that he had in, in flying Operation Good Cheer. Yeah. So, you know, you mentioned you don't, you haven't seen every, every aspect and it means something different to, to everybody who's involved. So uh, I'm, I'm curious, you know, you obviously devote a lot of your personal time and, and resources to it. So what is, what about you? What, what, what do you get out of it? Why, why do you do it? Well, when I started, I was just thrown into the back of a box truck donated by Roger Penske and used to ride from one side of the airport with a truckload of gifts and off to another smaller hangar. And we would sort the gifts and there was, I don't know, maybe 1200 gifts or something less than that, probably. And it was just fun bouncing around in the back of a truck. And then later on, I, I started uh, flying some of the flights and I would, you know, done it in a 172. I've uh, flown in turbo commanders and, uh, and I have my own airplane, which is a, a Piper Seneca. And I've flown that a number of, of years, but the, the unfortunate part is that's, that, that's a lot of fun flying the gifts, drop, you know, unloading the airplane and having the kids come out and grab the gifts is a, is a lot of fun. And I don't get to do that so much anymore because I'm handling more of the logistics end of it at Pontiac, but all of it's rewarding. And I, I love the flying. I, I love seeing aviation put in a positive light. I think that's uh, a great image for aviation. Yeah, absolutely. So, if somebody doesn't want to fly up from Florida to help, but they want to do something maybe locally, what do you suggest? How, how do you, how would you start something like this? I mean, how, how do you think they can get involved? Yeah, we've had a number of different organizations contact Child and Family Services of Michigan to try and find out how this program could be duplicated elsewhere. It hasn't worked out yet. A lot of it has to do with the structure of foster care placement in the state of Michigan. In many other states, the foster care systems are run exclusively through state government. 
in Michigan, it's been a, a combination of state government and private organizations. We primarily concentrated on the private organizations, but the state of Michigan is participating now as well. And that's why we've seen pretty big increases in participation each year over year. We're talking about about eight to 10% a year growth, which. Yeah, it's impressive. Yeah, yeah. It, it's extraordinary. After so many years, yes. And with luck, we're going to run out of foster kids in Michigan. But in other states where they're run by state government, they may have their own programs or no programs. And really, it's, it's not strictly an aviation program, and it's not strictly a foster care program. It's just the, the synergy between the two over a long period of time has made this program what it is. And I, I think it could be duplicated. I mean, it is duplicated with other types of uh, uh, subject matter like pilots at pause and, mm -hmm. uh, and, sure. and flying uh, vets. And I, I don't want to leave any programs out. I mean, you, have, you know, Wings of Mercy and, and, and other public benefit organizations. But we don't pay anything. As a matter of fact, out of those 25,000 people that participate each year, only one person is paid, and that's the executive director of Child and Family wow. Services of Michigan. Wow. Everybody else is a volunteer. And yeah, it does take up a fair amount of my time, but I get a big kick out of it. When you're forced with a huge logistical challenge that you have just a limited amount of time to make it all work, and everybody's a volunteer, you know, that, that that's a real exercise in herding cats. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Frustrating until you figure it out, until you can crack it. And then it's rewarding, I'm sure. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So I have to ask the inevitable question for this year. You know, you're talking about lots of people in a tight space. So what, what are the plans in, in the era of COVID? Well, for this year, for a number of different reasons, we don't have the ability to overstaff air traffic control facilities with overtime controllers. And that's required. So we don't have air traffic. We were limited to the number of people that we could put in a aircraft hangar that's donated each year generously by uh, uh, Pennastar Aviation in Waterford, Michigan. So we wouldn't be able to use their bathrooms. Uh, we, could, we, we couldn't do the sort and at the airport. And the other problem is we couldn't guarantee because of the limited number of participants that we could have it done in two days. So, you know, Pentastar, you know, they have airplanes that they have to pull out of the hangar so we can sort in the hangar. So this year we have a warehouse that's been uh, donated for a, a three-week period. We anticipate that we'll need it probably for four days, maybe five days. And we're not going to fly because we don't, well, we're not going to fly much. We don't have the use of, uh, of the airport terminal. Oakland County, Michigan has been great in... Uh, allowing us to use their facilities. We, I mean, we just take over the place. We take over the airport, we take over the terminal, and we take over air traffic in Michigan for at least one day. And we just don't have that flexibility this time because of social distancing. So what we're going to do is we're going to stretch out the sort and we're going to truck the majority of gifts, everything south of the Upper Peninsula of Michigan. We're probably still going to fly the Upper Peninsula, but we'll be doing it exclusively with uh, jets and a limited number of people. So we'll truck the gifts from our warehouse to the airport. We'll load them, send them on their way to Sawyer up in the UP near Marquette, 
and uh, the rest of it, we're going to be trucking everything in the lower peninsula. Mm. And it, there's always some stuff left over. And then sure. I'll call, call my buddies with airplanes or I'll get in the Seneca <laughs> to rip out the seats and we'll fly one or two trips. More importantly, so we can say we've flown 50 years. Yeah, that's right. We're not going to let this virus kill this program yeah. and, and, and aviation's uh, aspect within it. We're going to fly at, at least a little bit. And uh, so that's an exciting part. Yeah, fantastic. Well, Dean, thank you so much for uh, taking the time and best of luck with the, your, your sort of audible plans for this year. And, and yeah, and here's to, a, let's say, a normal year next year. Oh, next year, I imagine we're going to uh, really top ourselves. If the, if the numbers are any indication in the growth, we're, we're probably going to be looking at about 8,000 kids next year. And like I say, eventually, we're going to run out of foster kids. And that's okay. That's great. David Dean Dean's uh, an inspiring guy. I think uh, it's a it's a great organization. But uh, before we leave, I, I want to say well two things. We we want to talk about two quick things. One is scholarships. So if you need that support for training, AOPA as we know has been putting out millions of dollars every year in flight training scholarships, and that window is now open. That window opened on December first, Ian. And listen, I want to remind people that it's not just for high school students. There are four different categories, including teachers and folks who are going for their private or in another advanced rating. So, yeah, take a look at the AOPA scholarships that we just posted this week and, and see if you're eligible for one of them. Great. And then the last thing I want to leave you with, and this is a, a surprise for you. I didn't give you a, a heads up on this. Podstatus. I got an email from podstatus.com, whatever that is. And I want you to know we are the number one podcast, aviation podcast in, drumroll, Bulgaria. <laughs> Not bad, Ian. I was wondering when those stats were going to roll in. The award-winning award Hangar Talk podcast, I might That's add. right. That's right. That is so, great. So thank <laughs> you been... to the uh, the one listener in Bulgaria who has put us over the top. Actually, to, to be fair, we also number one in the Dominican Republic, number two in Israel, number two in China, number two in the Philippines, So, which actually the Philippines has an active GA community, training community. So, so there you go. We are loved around around the world. <laughs> I love that, Ian. And listen, you know, we, we love it when people contact us and give us story ideas and things to talk about on Hangar Talk. And, you know, we're doing the best we can to put some of this in perspective. I, I continue to say that you bring a really good perspective as a CFI into this mix and also as a helicopter pilot. And I try to throw a little bit in it from, uh, you know, former airplane owners, you know, standpoint and from the average Joe. So I hope our listeners appreciate that. Yeah, yeah. So thanks for listening. And uh, that's all the time we have for this week. I'm Ian Twombly. Our editor is Austin Hansen. And I'm David Tulis. Don't forget, you can find us at aopa.org slash hangertalk. You can say Alexa, play Hangar Talk. You can find us at your, wherever you find your Apple or Google podcast. And just take a look, take a listen, and call up Hangar Talk. All right. We'll see you next time. See you next time, Ian. Hangar Talk from AOPA. Your freedom to fly.